When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. Published earlier this year from Running Press, Kristen Lopez's But Have You Read the Book, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films, looks at almost 100 years of film adaptations of novels. The book offers a survey of how directors, actors, and screenwriters have transformed the raw material of fiction into works that were sometimes transgressive, sometimes reverential, and always compelling. Among the adaptations Kristen looks at are William Wyler's Wuthering Heights from the Emily Bronte novel, Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park from Michael Crichton's novel, Ridley Scott's The Blade Runner from Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides from Jeffrey Eugenide's novel. I'm excited to have Kristen Lopez on the podcast to discuss the book, Kristen has been the film editor at The Wrap since 2022 and the creator of the podcast Ticklish Business. Kristen's work has also been published in Culture S, Forbes, The Movie Isle, and Citizen Dane. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start off with a slightly different approach. Your book had me thinking critically about how these classic literary adaptations rely as much on casting and directing choices as on the text on the page. So first off, let's recast the 1934 film, The Thin Man. In the W.S. Van Dyke film based on Dishiel Hammett's adaptation, William Powell and Myrna Loy played Nick and Nora Charles. If you could recast the movie in any time period, who would you put in those roles? Oh gosh, you know, they've, they've talked about redoing The Thin Man before for a while i want to say at one point i'd read that rachel vice and johnny depp were being considered uh this was a long time ago uh and and then i think at one point they were looking at maybe like trying to do like maybe a racial recast i don't know they've talked about doing a a bunch of different things with it and uh i i think it's right for some type of modernized remake um so i i think that if we're trying to find a good nora charles you know i love broadway actors uh who do not get enough love and so annalee ashford she's mrs lovett right now on uh broadway and sweeney todd um but she's done a couple other kind of like daffy dame characters uh and i think she would just be the perfect the perfect uh uh nora charles finding a nick though is harder right because you have to find somebody that's able to be like dashing self-deprecating and also funny you know uh and i 
don't know how I feel about the massive age difference that I'm going to craft right now, but I think you'd have to go with a Marvel actor and that I'm torn between either Robert Downey Jr., uh, but the age difference is really, really wide, or Chris Hemsworth. Uh, it's weird. It's an unconventional choice, but if you've seen any of the, you know, Chris Hemsworth kind of like comedy roles, uh, I think I think he would be interesting. Um, if only I, I would love to see both of them play off against Annalie Ashford. I'm very confident in my Nora. My Nick is a little wonky, um, but I, I I think it's ripe for a remake. I wish uh, Hollywood, depending on who who could do it justice, uh, I think they should look into it. That's awesome. I think we're off to an an amazing start. I love those those choices. Chris Hemsworth as um, as Nick Charles, awesome. Um, another casting couch exercise, um, Robert Block's Psycho, adapted by Alfred Hitchcock. In it, Anthony Perkins played Norman Bates and Janet Lee played Marion Crane. If you could recast Psycho in any time period, who would you want to play Bates and Crane? It's tough because we both have the original and we already have a remake, right? They did the, the 98 shot for shot um, remake with Vince Vaughn and, and Heche. And having seen both of them you know it's it's a classic for a reason and i feel very weird about about re you know playing with it in in that way um and then there's also a tv series they did a tv show bates motel with freddie highmore so you have all of these kind of modern interpretations of the character um so it's it was this one's really really tough for me um just because Norman Bates as a character is so different in the book, you know, and I think that that's where we would have to go for a remake is can go more towards the novel, which posits the Nor- the Norman character, not like Anthony Hopkins or Anthony Hopkins, Anthony Perkins, excuse me, um, who is very, you know, sweet and unassuming. The Norman Bates in the book is just kind of like he's an alcoholic he, you know, has clearly some sort of like sexual deviance and misogyny to him. He's a very unlikable, unattractive type of character. Um, and that makes it even harder to cast, you know, somebody that you're like, oh, who would I who would I be interested in seeing? Uh, I see like Michael Shannon. Um just because I think that he can play kind of both sides. You know, we've seen him play kind of a meek and mild character in something like Take Shelter. But then we've also seen him play like just a total, like horrific human being in The Shape of Water. Um, so I think that he could play kind of the book's interpretation of of Norman Bates. As far as your Marion Crane, um, you know, again, Janet Lee is just so iconic, um, you know, and there is that kind of sexual component to it, but I'm going to be really weird and say that I would just be really fascinated to see Jamie Lee Curtis take the character in some way, kind of a continuation, even though it would totally change the relationship dynamic with all of the characters. It would be a really fun little in-joke just to have her reprise her mom's role in that way. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to go with that just because I really like it. Um, if we wa- wanted to go more conventional and, and go in terms of the character, um, I'm a big fan of of Gugu Mbatha-Ra. If you've seen Belle um, or uh, any of her other movies that she's done, um, 
you know, most of these movies do, did starred white characters or white actors, and she's fantastic. And I think it would be just great to see her play opposite Michael Shannon in this imagined world. Okay, that, that's awesome. Um, going back to Janet Lee, what era, Janet, or um, Jamie Lee Curtis? I mean, what era? The Hollow Halloween Jamie Lee Curtis or Fish Called Wanda? I mean, I think you could go, you know, Halloween would be the easiest one, but even something like True Lies era Jamie Lee Curtis, like early 90s. Like, I think you'd still get, it would still be awesome. Um, one last question, um, a sort of generative question. Uh, what is your favorite prop in the adaptations that you've written about here? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I didn't include Maltese Falcon, which is probably the greatest of all props. Um, but, you know, for me, it's there's one that fascinates me and then there's just one that I love. Um, you know, the one that fascinates me is in Kiss Me Deadly, uh, the the Mickey Spillane novel um that they adapted with robert aldrich you know there's there's something called the great what's it in that book which is um is you know a box that we don't know what's in it um we know it's this end of the world thing tarantino famously kind of did something similar with pulp fiction so i'm always i think that's just an iconic just amorphous it's just a box what's in it is up to the audience and i think that's really fascinating um if we're talking a prop that i just love that I would love to own. I know they've put some up for auction a couple of times, but the golden ticket from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, um, I, I mean, it's every kid's dream. I mean, I think is it most movie lovers, when they talk about, you know, movies that had an impact on them, Willy Wonka is on there. And the golden ticket, it, that is my Maltese Falcon. Like, I think that's just the the prop that most people uh, of, of certain generation are always drawn to. Reading your book, I started to reflect on early cinema. I remember a lot of 1930s and 1940s movies emphasizing the fact that they were based on literature. Um, capital L. In Snow White, I think it opens with like yeah. pages turning. And so movie makers were trying to borrow some of the prestige of uh, literary sources. What do you make of film's complicated relationship to literature? You know, it's interesting because since movies started being made they use books as a as an example i mean i think one of the earliest examples is um eric von stroheim's greed you know which is based on a novel and that's you know in the early 1920s so they've always used them as very easy ways to kind of get a story done you know you have this, the book you screenwriter's job is done for them they can just read the book and figure it out um and then as as hollywood becomes more of an industry you see literature really become the first ip you know the first intellectual property every studio had a department where a person had a job which is a job i would have loved to have had uh had i been living in the time you know, where they would just read all the books that were out, you know, or get copies of the books that were coming out and write up and send it to, you know, Daryl Zanuck or whoever was the head of the studio saying whether a book could be adapted and what you'd have to take out and how this would work. And that was their job. And books would be purchased before they were even published with the goal of, of having them be adapted. So it was really, a, a you know, kind of a, like, 
prospecting for gold. You know, every studio would jump on the ability to purchase the next hot book. Um, and that's how it worked for a really, really long time until, you know, the rise of, of streaming and all of the content that we have now. You know, I get asked a lot about, like, what was the last book that really entered the zeitgeist? Because that's something I noticed has really changed the most is that, you know, I think the last time I remember a book permeating the landscape is like Harry Potter or The Hunger Games. You didn't have to read Harry Potter. My mom's never read Harry Potter, but she knows Harry Potter, Hermione, Ron Weasley, that there's Hogwarts is a thing. You know, like she knows the tenets of the book. The book has permeated pop culture. The Hunger Games is a great example. Most people maybe haven't read it of a certain age, but they know, you know, Katniss Everdeen, their kids fighting to the death. And that's pretty much it. You know, that's really the last real time that a book was able to transcend its form. And now there are so many books, there's so many TV shows and movies, and there's so many different ways to watch them that most people don't even know a book has been adapted or that a, a project is an adaptation until maybe they read it, you know, because now or they see maybe, you know, adapted from the novel this, which is also kind of not in use as often as it is now because, you know, a, a, a screenwriter can change so much or, you know, they can throw the book out. So it's really hard for audiences to really connect with an adaptation Maybe in the romance genre, you know, the romance and YA market is still very book dependent, but it's it's a totally different relationship now. Um, and now people are writing books with the sole goal of getting it sold for an adaptation of some kind. That's where the real money, they say, is, you know, it's not in writing the book. It's having a Apple buy it for, you know, eight figures or whatever, and then you get your cut. Um, so it's a very different relationship. You know, books up until, you know, the 1960s, 1970s, were the primary form of ways people communicated with each other. You know, people read Gone with the Wind, and it was the most popular book. They could talk to other people. I mean, you didn't know anything about what was going on unless you read Gone with the Wind. Now you don't have that. You know, now somebody can say, well, did you read this book? It's like the number one New York Times bestseller. And most people are like, yeah, that's great i'll wait for the movie but then i probably won't remember that the movie is based on the book that you've mentioned um so it's a very different relationship and i miss it i miss like the ability i, I think because it was so much easier when you could realize like the book to film pipeline was so easy to figure out and now it's you know there's so many different avenues and there's so many different things there's so much content um it's harder to have that relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. I, splint, the splintered audience is a big part of it. Do, do you think nonfiction has kind of displaced fiction as well? I mean, we're we're talking in um, the summer of 2023, and the two biggest movies of the summer are like Oppenheimer, based on a nonfiction book, and Barbie, based on IP. So has that, um, I guess, superseded or taken over the place of fiction? Nonfiction is really interesting because it's usually utilized as a way to get around sticky subject matter, you know, um, especially, you know, in the case of what we, what I see a lot of nonfiction stuff utilizing is magazine articles. 
Um, you know, the Bling Ring is a great example, the Sofia Coppola film, or even most recently, Craig Gillespie's Pam and Tommy, which is not based on the real people, according to Craig Gillespie. It's based on a Rolling Stone article. And a lot of people say that it's easier to buy the rights to an article that maybe involves real people than it is to go to those people and get their life rights for an adaptation. So it's kind of a, a kind of sleazy way it's it makes me sweaty you know and when i i start to think about it but i think nonfiction has always been a real in a real way in for awards heavy stuff you know we're seeing it this year speaking of craig gillespie you know he adapted ben mesridge's book the anti-social network for dumb money which is coming out this year um so i think that it's it's a great way for like awards baity things you know get a nonfiction book and you can work with that um but i don't see it i don't see the rush to a, to get adapt nonfiction stuff in the same way that i still do with fiction i know you've written about disability and film representations and ableism and theater design how did that interest get reflected in this book or or how might writing this book inform your views on the history of disability representation yeah i mean i didn't get to go into it as much as i'd have liked mostly because i didn't pick a lot of books that i think had really had depictions of disability i think you know a great example is something like frankenstein you know where I, that book has so many interpretations and it's been deconstructed from nearly every lens uh and so you know it, it definitely is a disabled story a lot of people with disabilities tend to identify with horror and um, monster characters just because we don't get a lot of representation that's positive so you know we we glom on to the few characters that we feel do represent us and oftentimes those are outsiders those are characters that don't look like the norm or don't conform to the norm so frankenstein really is kind of like the first disabled hero uh as i would say and he is a hero because really i feel like dr frankenstein is actually the villain of that book uh for a variety of reasons so he he definitely it, you can't read frankenstein not look at it from a disabled lens you know um other stories where you have maybe characters you know that there are certainly other books that I think I could have utilized that have, you know, disability changes that I just didn't include, you know, like Heidi is a great example, Secret Garden, you know, a lot of those like gothic literature where you have like children that are wasting away in a beautiful house. Um, you know, I, I did not put me before you in this book only because I was like, the book is called, but have you read the book? And I don't want to talk about movies or books that I hate. And I hate me before you um, because it's just ridiculously offensive to the disabled community. Um, so I didn't get to indulge it as much as I'd like. Maybe if I get a volume two, uh, I can kind of let loose uh, and go crazy on that front. Because there are a lot of of interesting ways that Hollywood uh, does and does not play with disability in literature that is uh, frustrating and fascinating. Let's dig into the book. Uh, some of the great behind-the-scenes stories uh, in movie history involved to have and have not. Uh, how did that Howard Hawks movie get made? Yeah, you know, to have and have not is uh, the one book, you know, I, I mentioned that I didn't want to put books that I hated, and it, to have and have not is the one book I hate. Um, and it was the last book that I had to do. Uh, I had, I was all finished. I started reading the book and within the first maybe five pages, it's just racial slurs. Uh, and it was really hard for me to read. And I, I 
emailed my publisher and I was like, I don't know if I can endorse this book because it's horrifically racist. Uh, and he was like, well, you know, you can start a new book. And I was like, yeah, but I already watched the movie and I already kind of like, I'm like, this is the last one. I'm just, I'm going to have to find a way to pivot. So I ended up looking into the backstory of, of the movie and realized that Howard Hawks and Ernest Hemingway, the author, knew it was a bad book. They knew it was awful. Howard Hawks made a bet with uh, Ernest Hemingway one weekend. They were drinking like Hemingway was wont to do. Uh, and he said, well, I bet I can make a great adaptation out of your worst novel. And that was to have and have not. And he said, okay. And and Hawks started pitching the the movie to different studios. And it ended up causing a rift between Hemingway and Hawks because Hemingway found out that he had kind of sold him the rights for a very small amount of money. And Hawks made more money pitching the book to different studios because they would they would look at it, they'd buy an option for a couple of months and then they decided they didn't want to make it. And then he'd take it to the next studio. They'd buy the option, they'd give him some money and they didn't want it. He'd take it to the next studio. So Hemingway got really mad that he was like, you are making more money off of selling, my, trying to sell my book than I did. If anybody's going to profit, it should be me um, because Hemingway was not a great person um but but hawks did finally get a studio to purchase it and what ended up happening was uh it was warner brothers and they they wanted to make a casablanca ripoff um which is what they did they made they made their version of howard uh ernest hemingway's casablanca by bringing in humphrey bogart playing a very similar character to his rick blaine they brought in lauren bacall playing kind of a shady character like Ilsa. Um, and they said it in, they, they threw out the plot line, they changed some things, and it's very much a Casablanca story. But it was a huge hit. It was a massive success. Howard Hawks proved his point. Um, but then eventually in the 50s, Michael Curtiz wanted to remake that. He wanted to remake To Have and Have Not the book, not the movie. And he ended up making something that was far closer to Hemingway's book, albeit still very changed you know he went back to the plot line um of you know the the uh harry morgan character played by john garfield is this boat captain he's torn between two women um you know it's it's definitely a far darker story but what i love about the breaking point which is the this the remake um and i absolutely like it more than to have and have not is that michael curtis added in a side character for John Garfield's character played by Juano Hernandez, who is a man of color. And that character is just so heartbreaking in the movie. Um, and his, his end without spoiling things is enough to rip your heart out. Uh, and I love that that character ends up being the heart and soul of the movie because it really does feel intentionally or not. I will never know. Like it's sticking it to Hemingway for making his book so unrepentantly racist. That's great. Um, I, I was struck by the way material written and say the early 19th century gets reimagined in the 20th century. We've already talked about um, Frankenstein. Um, what is your favorite example of a modern movie that reaches back to another century for source material? Oh gosh. I mean, there's, there's so many, you know, um, I'm, I'm a fan of, you know, the, the, classic gothic stuff uh you know i i love 
Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. It is gaudy and overwrought, but it is so fun and it's beautifully filmed. Um, and it's it's just a lot of fun. It holds a lot of commonality to the book, but it's just like it's just it's an opera, you know, it's fantastic. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Wuthering Heights, you know, Jane Eyre. Kara Fukunaga's Jane Eyre, I think, is is a beautiful movie. Um, and I love that's that's a favorite of mine. Um, you know, Anna Karenina, there's been like a million versions of Tolstoy's book, and I'm a big fan of the 2012 Joe Wright version, which again, very operatic, very overwrought, but like a generation of teenagers probably are gonna get into Tolstoy after after reading that. Um, you know, the OG for me, I mean, the the movie that got me into liking old literature, and it's kind of a cheat because technically he's a playwright, but, you know, Baz Luhrmann doing Romeo and Juliet in the 90s, uh, you know, that that's the one that made me be like, I got to read some iambic pentameter, uh, and I'm just interested in this. So those are all like foundational films that I, I like, if you want to try to kind of cheat the process a little bit, but also just realize that you need to go back to the, the book. Those are great examples. Oh yeah, that that the Lorman uh, Romeo and Juliet is awesome. And I, I think yeah. that Mercutio is terrific. He might yeah. be- Yeah, Harold Perrineau, he is so great. He is so great in that. And you know, the 90s is a really interesting time. It's kind of like literature 101, you know, a lot of, of great adaptations, you know, uh, Gillian Gillian Armstrong did Little Women in 94 again a whole generation of of young girls became Louisa May Alcott fans um you know and you even get some of the bad you know the really bad adaptations because everything we really really wanted to try to modernize classic literature so like I have a soft spot for the Demi Moore Scarlet Letter you know, uh, it's a terrible, terrible movie, but it is just, it's become the gold standard, I think, of bad adaptations. But if anything, I know a lot of people that have seen the movie that I probably forced to watch the movie and then have decided, like, I have to go back and read the book so that I can tell, like, how ridiculous this is. Because I'm going to, I tell them all the time, like, you laugh at Demi Moore's horrific accent, but... The character that she's married to is named Chillingworth, you know, because there's no subtlety in Hawthorne. So, you know, I think more people are thrown by like what they keep from the book. Uh, so if anything, they're still really interested in it. Oh, that's awesome. What, what do you think of the the Emma Stone adaptation or Easy A? Easy A. I love Easy A. I think that, and I think that that's where the real fun of like adaptation comes through is in films that are not selling themselves as adaptations. So like Easy A is a completely original story, but it's inspired, you know, by the Scarlet Letter. Fire Island uh, that came out, you know, a year or two ago um, is, is its own original story, but it's very much inspired by Pride and Prejudice. Um, Clueless, you know, is said to be based on Emma. Um, but, and I think that that's really the interesting way that creatives work with adaptation is like, taking the basic tenets of something and using that to tell a completely original story, but you can still see the shades, you know, of the original film. Um, I remember writing a paper about cruel intentions and, you know, how it's, how it's similar to Delaclos's novel in college. And I was like, I love that. I'm all, cause most people 
you know, they see like based on, you know, the liaisons, Don Jerus, you know, and they're like, I don't know what that means. Uh, but you read, you know, the original novel and you can see how weirdly enough, you know, faithful it is to, you know, so clearly the director and screenwriter Roger Cumble like really liked the novel because it's very faithful in many ways. Um, and I love that. I think that that's far more interesting than, you know, kind of redoing the same story, you know, finding a way to further the conversation by maybe modernizing or tweaking it in some way always, I think, yields really strong results. That's a great transition uh, to my next question, which is Jane Austen's Emma is the basis for Amy Heckerling's Clueless. As you point out, it sparked this whole wave of transplanting classical literature to high school settings throughout the 1990s and early aughts. What, what you call, uh, I think you said literature 101, these yeah. kind of classes uh, the, or these kinds of movies. Um, why was that such a prominent strategy at that moment in U.S. movie making? lot of it was you know we're on the verge of a new millennium um the what we now know is millennials you know we're starting to come into their buying power you know they're they're hitting that 16 you know 15 16 17 and and you know the 90s really was this interesting era of consumerism not for adults but for teenagers and children um you know and and as somebody who was a, a child and a teenager through the 90s you know i remember no greater time of being inundated with things to buy uh than than that time period and so i think a lot of it was the realization that teenagers have a lot of money and a lot of income uh how can we use that in a way that will, you know, get them to buy stuff? How will we get them into the movie theater? You know, because also the, the drawing allure of the movie theater was no more powerful than it was in the 90s. You know, summer movie season was a huge deal, you know. Um, so I think it was a really easy way to be like, well, you know, kids need to learn these books. And if we can find a way to do that, that speaks to them, and we can get their money, you know, it's edutainment in this, this really interesting way. So, and I think that once one movie does well, you know, all the rest follows. So, you know, Romeo and Juliet's a huge hit. That means we, teens want more Shakespeare, you know, so you got like pretty much every Shakespeare adaptation had a teenage component, you know, Othello gets O, um, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream gets turns into Get Over It with with um, Kirsten Dunst. Um, I, you know, Ten Things I Hate About You is Taming of the Shrew. Um, so I, once one movie did well, you know, just everything starts to fall into place, and you get this big wave of foundational teen movies that like really were uh, compelling and interesting and unique and kind of saucy. You know, I remember. Dangerous, uh, Cruel Intentions, we could not watch in school, but oddly enough, we could watch Dangerous Liaisons, the John Malkovich version. I don't really know how that worked out, but, uh, you know, that was the thing. And then eventually that started to turn into, you know, you would get kind of stuff that was kind of inspired. So like, you know, the faculty, the the Robert Rodriguez movie is very much inspired by, you know, Robert Heinlein's, uh, or, uh, um invasion of the body snatchers so so you got stuff like that but then with that comes a lot of questions about you know as columbine becomes a thing in the late 90s there's questions of you know too much violence in film you know oh was was 
chastised for being too violent. Romeo and Juliet had too much gunplay in it. Um, so there were there were a lot. Of, it was a very interesting time to be a book and be marketed to teens um, because there were a lot of cooks in that kitchen. One thing I learned from your book was how Kim Kessie quit the movie production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest over the choices that producers were making about his work. How did Milos Forman's book take liberties with Kesey's text? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that I always point out about Cuckoo's Nest is it is not McMurphy's book. It's not the Jack Nicholson character, which, by the way, you know, Jack Nicholson does not fit the description of the characters Kesey wrote him. He's like this big, hulking, six-foot, red-haired lumberjack. Not Jack Nicholson at all, if you've seen the film. Um but but Milos Forman and um, Saul Zantz and Michael Douglas, who were the producers, you know, they really liked Nicholson. They wanted him. And once he became the star of the film, you kind of have to fit the narrative around him. And Kesey was really not happy with that because the book is really from Bromden's perspective, which is the Will Sampson character. And Kesey really wanted to look at not just mental illness, but also how it disproportionately affects people of color and marginalized communities. And that's not what the movie is interested in. You know, the movie was interested in getting getting Jack Nicholson an Oscar nomination, which he's fantastic in it. I think Jack Nicholson is great, but Will Sampson's also really good in it. And he never he never got a role as good as that again, as far as I know, you know, um, and it's really sad, you know, that that I think a lot of the issues that we're still talking about today with regards to actors of color are evident in this, you know, that they have the opportunity to tell this story about an indigenous man and mental illness, and they decide to shift it to the white guy. Uh, so I understand Kesey's irritation with it, um, because it is it is a big deal. And the movie does also really downplay Bromden's mental illness. You know, Bromden in the book is clearly having some sort of mental issue. He talks about, you know, seeing this weird haze that he calls the combine um, throughout the book that, you know, um, he, he does grapple with issues and the movie really downplays it you know like he's he's just he's faking it you know because he doesn't want to you know deal with with reality so it it does play very you know fast and loose with some serious topics it's still a fantastic movie and I think that what's a great a great adaptation is one of those where you can appreciate the film and then go back and read the book and appreciate you know everything that the book is saying but I think it does do a disservice and you have to treat them as separate entities in order to get over the fact that, you know, a lot of the changes were made just because of, you know, good old fashioned examples of, of white privilege. What we now know is white privilege. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another thing I learned from your book was um, the, how the class dimension 
in um, Peter Benchley's Jaws gets dropped out in, in Spielberg's adaptation. The mayor um, is also embroiled in organized crime in Benchley's novel, um, which, which yeah. I didn't know. Um, tell us about some of these central interpersonal conflicts in the two versions of Jaws. Yeah, you know, Steven Spielberg, there's there's several adaptations that I put that he was involved in in the book. And that's just because he is really good at working with written material. And, you know, his big thing when he read Jaws was, you know, you have to take out the mob stuff and you got to streamline your process a bit more. Um, and it's funny because when people discover my book, the first thing they say is, well, your book is about advocating for the source material. Why would you include Jaws? Everybody knows Jaws is trash. And I have to laugh at that because Jaws was a New York Times bestseller. Like it was a huge hit. So clearly in the 70s, people were really into this before there was ever a movie. And I think that the reason people say it's trash now is you are hard pressed to find a person at this point who saw the, who read the book first. You know, and I think that that plays a part in certain movies because people that have seen the movie first and then go back and read the book, the book is not going to compare to to one of the quintessential films of all time. So a lot of people just have really high expectations. They think that Spielberg crafted, or, or they don't know that there's a book. I have a lot of people that say, like, I thought Spielberg just crafted that out of his own imagination. Like, no, he had, sort of, he had help. He had a book. Um, and I think that they're they're thrown by a couple of things, which is the class issue. There's a lot of discussion in the book. It's almost like vignettes, you know, kind of like you're reading a New Yorker article about different people in Amity who are all struggling with the how much the shark is affecting them. You know, the shark really isn't, it really isn't a real thing in the, in the book as it is in the movie. Benchley wrote the shark as a representative for blight, any blight, financial blight, bad harvest, you know. So the fact that it's coming into this town, he spends a lot of time with different characters talking, <coughs> excuse me, talking about how they're going to make ends meet. How are they going to pay their bills? How are they going to, you know, survive? And it's really hard where you're reading this book and you're like, where's the shark? I don't really want to hear about these people starving, you know, like this is not working for me. Go back to the shark stuff. Um, and then you get the mob, you know, Larry Vaughn is, is in league with the mob and they want the beaches open. It's just unnecessarily convoluted. Um, but another thing people hate about the book is the relationship dynamics between um, Brody Hooper and Brody's wife. Um, and in the book, which the one, this was the thing that threw me, like the mob stuff I got over. I'm like, ah, this is weird, but whatever. But I could not get over the fact that Brody in the book is written to be like Brad Pitt. You know, he's like 6'5", blonde hair, you know, he's described as like incredibly hot. And um, Brody and his wife have this dynamic in the book that's different than in the film. You know, Brody's um, Brody is an Amity resident and his wife is a rich woman that has married him and they've now become Amity residents, as opposed to them just being New York transplants coming into this small, small little seaside town. Um, so there's a lot of discussion about like, he's this poor guy who spent his whole life there. She wants something more and she meets Hooper, who is a guy she knows from her past. He's the, the brother of a guy she dated. And they embark on this affair. And it is the most uncomfortable thing to read because you're just seeing Richard Dreyfus in your head. You're like, I don't know how I can read 
and it reads almost like a dear penthouse letter at certain points like you get these really long sequences between brody and hooper where they're engaged in like sex talk and they're they're having sex and it's you're just again you're reading it and you're like i am disgusted right now because i'm seeing richard dreyfus in my head and i'm hearing him say all these crass things um it's just it's a lot um and it, it feels very much like benchley you know this was benchley's first big success and it reads like a guy who really just wanted to make like this dark drama and hit on a lot of like saucy topics like infidelity and poverty and the mob and ah, we have a shark here um it does not it does not work it i don't know maybe somebody reading it in the 70s could tell me why it worked then and it doesn't work now but it is just it is a lot um and the movie is better it's one of the few times i will tell people the movie is far better than the book well, at, at first i was kind of getting sold on the book the way you were kind of describing <laughs> it of being like this kaleidoscope view of, of the town you know under threat um and like how it touches on all these different lives but yeah okay i can see the richard dreyfus um uh issues or or um that that dimension um let's talk about um jurassic park another spielberg adaptation um i think another thing i learned from your book um john hammond in the book is pretty um is a much more sinister character right yeah yeah i mean i when people ask me what's my favorite adaptation I always point to Jurassic Park because Jurassic Park is a great example. You can read the book and watch the movie and you lose nothing. If anything, one just enriches the other. You know, they're both just perfect. perfect. It's a perfect book. It's a perfect movie. And together they just make this really great world that you can appreciate both. And, you know, Michael Crichton was kind of like the Spielberg of the book world. You know, everything he wrote was successful. Everything he wrote almost, for the most part, got adapted. Um, You know, so he was just, he was a a fantastic writer. And reading the book, it's already so cinematic. You know, he, he gives you so much richness and the writing is so fast. And sometimes he includes like computer screens and maps and diagrams. So you're getting pictures while you're reading this book. And what's immediately different about the first, the, the novel from the film is that it starts almost like a mystery, kind of like a whodunit. Um, if you saw the opening of The Lost World, the Jurassic Part 2, it's the opening of the the book um, where the little girl is on the beach and she sees these little dinosaurs and it all turns ugly. Um, that's the opening of the novel. And that's fleshed out to a series of attacks on different people on this island where they're like, what is going on? You have doctors trying to figure out what are these mysterious bites? We don't know what this animal is that's attacking people. And it's very much a mystery, you know, up until a certain point when the John Hammond character shows up and, and things take kind of the route that they do in the the film. Um, Spielberg went back and forth a lot with the screenwriters on who was going to live and who was going to die. So odds are, if you are sad somebody died in the movie, go back and read the book because they might have lived or they might have died. Um, you know, spoiler alert, Malcolm is supposed to die in the book. Um, he comes back in the sequel book there's a really weird explanation for it, but he he dies in the book. Um, 
but Hammond is just a really venal, dark, demented Walt Disney, you know, where he's very much kind of blended with the lawyer in that he's all concerned with money. And his death scene is just really brutal, but very fun. Um, and and I, I will read... I watch Jurassic Park all the time. I read the book very often too. It's a frequent reread just because it's so fun. And it's it very much is a cousin to the novel or to the film. Y you can enjoy both on their own merits and you're not disappointed by either. And that does not happen like at all. Uh but only only with that one. You know, it's it's a real perfect union of of book to film. Yeah, Jurassic Park for me is an annual rewatch, but but I have to go back and read read the Crichton novel and uh, dig in. Um, you you've really piqued my interest. It's um, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bl Blade Runner is absolutely one of my favorite movies. Um, I believe you said you watched this uh, for the first time in preparation for writing this book. It was one of the books, um, or one of the movies, um that you turn to, to, to sort of fill out the book, right? Um, one of the big changes in the novel is dropping the family angle from Deckard's story. In the um, Philip K. Dick source material, he's married and he's in pursuit of, uh, of a, so a, a social status symbol, uh, a living animal, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I I had never seen Blade Runner. This was not the Philip K. Dick novel that I wanted to do. Initially, I had pitched um, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which is what they used for Total Recall, because I love Total Recall. And my publisher was like, that's actually a novella. It's not a full book. You have to do full books. Um, So I was very upset. And I said, fine, I guess I'll do Blade Runner. Um, Because I had seen Blade Runner 2049 and hated it uh so i was like oh god this is gonna this is not gonna be for me um but i i watched the movie and the movie i think is is very good i don't i don't know if i can say that it's the best thing i've seen but maybe that's just because i waited too long to see it um but what i i think that ridley scott and the script does so well with dick's novel is streamline a very dense book you know the the book is very heavy and has so much of Dick's um, symbolism and metaphor. You know, it's not really a mystery. You know, it's not a noir like like the movie is. It's very much a, a treatise kind of on what makes us human. So Deckard has a has a wife that doesn't really want to connect with him. Um, and there's their life is bound up in the these status symbols of like, they want a real, you know, the, a real sheep, a real animal holds more weight, you know, than these robotic ones that everybody has. And it really does take a turn into these, these questions of like, why do we want authentic, inauthentic experiences? You know, why do we invest in relationships for status? And it's very dense. It's a very, very dense novel. Um, and I think that the Ridley Scott story does a good job of taking all those questions that the book posits about, like, what makes us human? Can a robot ever really engage with us on the same level as an emotional human connection? It takes all those stories and by making it a neo-noir ends up making the story 
more complex, I think, than the book does. No disrespect to the Philip K. Dick lovers out there, um, but it it's it's a great example of how you know a text can be really complex, and a good screenwriter that knows how to work with that can turn it into something that has the same impact while making this the narrative more coherent. Something else that I saw recurring in the book was the impulse of uh, movie makers to either sanitize the content of sources or tamp down some of the politics in the book. So so being drawn to maybe a salacious novel and then um, strategically weeding out what, what the initial attraction was. Uh, is that fair or are there some counterexamples of movies uh, becoming more radical or sensationalist than their sources? Yeah, I mean, you had a lot of that happen through up until the 1960s because you had the Hays Code. And the Hays Code allowed, you know, for only so much, but you couldn't have bad guys win. You couldn't engage in wanton sex, cursing, drinking, you know. So so great example is something like Anita Loses Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which Howard Hawks, him again, uh, adapted in the 50s with Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell. And that book is very much a thinly veiled kind of gossipy look at people Anita Luz really knew. Um, you know, it's based on a lot of her friends. Um, and it's very much a novel about a young woman that travels in actively wanting to be a gold digger. Um, and funnily enough, there's a character in the book that is based on Will Hayes. Um, he's this puritanical boring dude who uh his family is involved in making and sanitizing movies and at the end of Luz's book Lorelai Lee marries him so that she can be a star in his movies and and she very much wins at the end it's a similar ending to Anita Luz's script that she wrote for a 1930s film called Redheaded Woman which is a pre-code movie so it's it's, it's allowed to have its star Jean Harlow get away with her bad behavior because it came out before the code went into effect. After the code went into effect, she probably would have been killed off or something. But when Howard Hawks made Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in the 50s, the Hayes Code's in full effect. So Lorelai Lee is still a gold digger. She's open about it. We love her because of it. But the movie ends with her and her friend Dorothy Shaw getting married um, and kind of allegedly maybe putting aside their gold digger way. So it, it's a very happy ending. Um, once the code ends in the mid sixties, you start to see less, you see, you see more of an uptick in sex, drinking, cursing, but then you also have this kind of fear of not offending people that maybe would pay to go see your film. So a, a great example is Rosemary's baby, um, which it's a book about the Antichrist, you know? Uh, so you're kind of like, I don't really know how we could avoid offending people. But the book is very focused alongside Rosemary's journey with um, Rosemary's relation to Catholicism. So, you know, her family has disowned her because she's married a man who's not Catholic. She has a lot of Catholic guilt. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on the Pope coming to town. Um, and Roman Polanski took all of that out because they didn't want to offend um, Catholics. So, you know, and it's it's a little it's a little silly, I think, when you read it now that they were so afraid of offending, offending them. Um it also changes the end, which really bugs me because I think the book's ending is just 
fantastic. Um, not to say that the movie's ending isn't good, but the book's ending just has a little bit longer sequence that's kind of a cherry on top. Um, that's really great. Um, so you you would see after the code ends because because there's no film censorship that you saw directors and screenwriters and producers taking a more active role in kind of making sure that movies were not going to be wantonly offensive. Um, and we're seeing it now, you know, in, in especially in the book world, you know, um, most recently uh, there were some James Bond books that got re-released with uh, sequences taken out that might offend people. There was a controversy about Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory being edited the book version to remove references uh, that might be considered fat shaming to Augustus Gloop. So it's interesting that we're seeing kind of this pullback to the source material to try to reconcile to modern views of how we look at these things, um, especially in, in comparison to how they were presented back in the day in their films. You know, to go back to James Bond, Dr. No. Um, which was the first Sean Connery Bond I'd ever seen was for this book. Um, you know, the book version of Dr. No is kind of ableist. Dr. No is this disabled guy. He's got these really big clunky claws on his hands. Uh, you know, he's he's very much this bitter depiction of disability that is just silly. Um, and and the, the Ursula Andress character, you know, Honey Rider, is very much this kind of woman child. She's big eyes and... She doesn't really know what to do. Uh, you know, she's it's very sexist. And even in the, you know, the the film version, they changed Dr. No to make him less weird looking, mostly because they couldn't get the claws to work. Um, so they had to kind of revise. But they make Ursula Andress's character a bit more, have, have a bit more agency. She's not like a walking sex robot. She knows like how to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, you know, they, they kind of flesh her out a little bit more. Um, but now, you know, with the books, they're going back and they're kind of changing them in a way where it's just like, we have the movie. You don't really need to. We already know these books came out at a certain time. You know, we know that they're dated. That's that's fine. You can't don't ignore. Don't try to change what we know, like just try to make them better. And let's be progressive now as opposed to editing the past. Uh, you're a big fan of Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Have you continued to be a fan of of her work through the Begotten? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a big Sofia Coppola fan. I'm I'm eagerly awaiting her new film Priscilla. Um, I'm ready for that. And and I knew I was gonna have a, a Sofia Coppola book on here. It was either gonna be this or Marie Antoinette. Um, and I went with this because I I remember seeing the movie and. It was a whole new world for me. I was, you know, a teenage girl and I was like, this movie speaks to me. Um, and then I was thrown that it was based on a book written by a man, which was very weird. Um, and to read the book, you know, the book is oddly enough, kind of verbatim the film. You know, Sofia Coppola takes a lot of the same sequences, a lot of the same line readings and the dialogue. And what's fascinating is how she kind of just changes things a little bit you know Jeffrey Eugenides who wrote the book um said that he based it on um his daughter's babysitter who talked about how you know her and her sisters wanted to kill themselves and he found that fascinating and he wrote this book and you know to hear that story you're like 
I don't know how I feel about a grown man hearing that and thinking, you know what? should write a novel about that. Uh, but but I think that it's a great example of how you can have a director that's maybe a different gender or a different race than the source materials author and how their experience can change how they approach the material. And to read the book, you know, which is very similar to the film, you know, you can still feel that Eugenides is siding kind of with the young boys in the book um that that's his experience that he relates to them and to watch the film you realize that Sofia Coppola relates to the girls and I think that that's it's why when people talk about like why do we have to modernize everything you know we have this we're having this ongoing discussion about like what's woke um and I think that this it's a great example of how you know a director that maybe is a woman can read a source material and be in love with it but tell their story in a different way you know another great example i didn't include it in the book because i don't like the book is uh brett easton ellis's american psycho american psycho is one of my favorite movies and most people are shocked when they see the film and realize that it's not only written but it's directed by a woman um you know and and they both guinevere turner and, and mary heron both read, you know, Brett Easton Ellis's novel and loved it and wanted to tell this story about consumerism and masculinity in a way that it's just like the fir- the earliest example I can think of of a story about that's overtly talking about toxic masculinity and it's doing it in 2001 um, and it's set in the 80s. So it's it's a great example. I, I appreciate when a director that maybe isn't the same as as an author is fascinated with something because their experience can open up a whole new way of looking at the text that you maybe didn't even think of. Um, you, you write about Greta Gerwig's Little Women, um, which I'm a huge fan of um, as well. Um, what, what did you think of um, the reimagining of Amy March, the Florence Pugh character? Yeah, I mean, Little Women's been every generation has a version of little women going back to 1933 and i love i love the 49 version uh not a popular opinion but i love it the 94 version is the one that i i know and love but i think what greta gerwig does so well is she's the first director to really interrogate louisa may alcott and her writing of the book at that time you know and and amy march is so many different characters based on just the films you know if you look at all of the different iterations of her she's you know she's vain she's you know a money grubber she's stupid she's flighty she's selfish um and Greta Gerwig I think was the first character first performer or creative to be like Yes, she is all of those things, but also like, let's look at the reasons why she has to be those things. Um, And Florence Pugh has a fantastic speech in the movie where she talks about, you know, her, her husband being the person that would own her children. And, you know, she doesn't really have a choice in, in her life. And I just love that Greta Gerwig was like, like what we were talking about, you know, with books being changed today, you know, she's saying like, we're not asking to change little women, you know, but we should be interrogating why authors of this time period are writing about characters the way they're writing about them and how it's our job as directors and screenwriters 
to maybe try to explicate that a little bit and further those discussions. And I think she does it in a, a really, really fantastic way. I mean, ending ending her film with this kind of meta publication of Little Women, I think is really smart in the sense of like saying, the book is fantastic. The book created this generation of, of film lovers and, and book readers but it's, and it's also dated, you know, and those two things can coexist and find a harmony in them. Yeah, I also felt from your um, exploration of how Children of Men was adapted from P.D. James's source material, that a lot of the changes that that Alfonso Cuaron adaptation made really opened up new horizons for, for the topics explored in that. Can you talk yeah. to us about that? Yeah, I had never I had never seen Children of Men up until I had written uh wrote the book and I watched it and I was it's fantastic. Uh spoiler alert, it is a brilliant brilliant movie. Um and and then I read the book and I understood the people that maybe have seen Jaws and then went back and read Peter Benchley's novel because for me I read P.D. James's book and I was like, nothing's going to compare to me seeing this movie for the first time. Um, and I think what this, the, the film does so well, and, and Alfonso Cuaron is also a really great uh, adaptations director. You know, um, he did A Little Princess, which is a fantastic adaptation, um, but he does something in terms of making the movie more action-packed so that he can have the audience be interested in these themes. The book is a very heady book. You know, it's a very dense book, almost like Philip K. Dick's uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, because it's dealing with two very different things, which is that there is, you know, this awareness of people kind of trying to kill themselves in order to avoid staving off the inevitable, like, slow decline of humanity um which people are real which they're being sold is it's this this quiet beautiful death and it's actually like really horrible kind of like carousel if you've seen logan's run um but the other element of the book is this kind of nihilistic cynical ending you know which is the the movie revolves around key which is the 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 woman uh that is pregnant and trying to get her to the right people and maybe find a way to stave off the the end of humanity because she's pregnant and there could be a, a cure there or at least some sort of way to rebuild humanity in the in the book you know it's a the group of them spoiler alert julianne moore does not die right away um as she does in the movie but there is a group of them and they are trying to deal with the fact that it's Julianne Moore's character actually in the book that is pregnant. Um, and at the end, when all of the character, and it's impossible not to talk about the ending of the book because so much of that is changed in the film, but at the end of the book, there is this moment where the right people have discovered them and it's this big hallelujah moment that a woman has been pregnant and, and this is gonna save humanity. But it turns out, you know, that the the Clive Owen character, you know, people are assuming that he is a stud horse in a way, you know, that he can start impregnating people. Um, and it really does end on this ambiguous bit of power dynamics, which is like, this is a guy that starts off with this altruistic reason to save humanity. And now he's being vaunted as this messiah. And what does that do to a person's psyche? 
you know, does that make them a villain because they realize the power that they hold? And it's a really dark kind of questionable ending that is not at all the, the uh, very hopeful, like inspirational, bittersweet end of, of Quaron's, uh film. And I, I appreciate that. Like I, I'm all for both, both mediums uh, and what they, they represent. Uh, and again, I think that, both are fun in their own way and, and are really interesting and yield a lot of questions. To pivot to a larger discussion about source material, we live in this IP saturated moment, especially the MCU and Star Wars content. Um, how is adapting a novel different or similar to that process? You know, I've talked to screenwriters who have worked in adaptation and they've said, you know, there it's a misnomer, right? People assume that, an adaptation's the easiest kind of writing because you already have the book as a guide. And most screenwriters will tell you that is a total lie because with a, with an adaptation, you have to appease two totally disparate audiences. You have to appease people that have read the book and that love the book. And you have to appease audiences that don't know anything about the book and just want to go see a good movie. And those two people, those two groups might never meet. Um, so, you know, for, for a screenwriter, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of them. They've said that, you know, they try to capture the feeling that they had when they wrote or when they read the book for the first time. And if they can kind of take that along with, you know, beats that people expect, then they'll be in a good place. But that doesn't always work, you know, and, and there's been some adaptations where I've never read the book, but I love the movie and the movie didn't work. And, you know, you're, you're disappointed that you're like, there's all these other books. Why didn't they adapt them? They're like, well, the first movie didn't make any money because nobody saw it but you. Um, so that, that happens a lot. Um, you know, and so with with IP like like Star Wars, you know, you're dealing with a similar type of like ingrained canon. Um, you know, you can't take the characters too far afield from where they are. Otherwise, you will totally alienate the core fan base. But you don't you want to get people that maybe aren't the fan base like me, you know, who's not like a Star Wars diehard to go see it. Uh, so it's it's very it's a similar process. It's a very similar process. And you know, most screenwriters will tell you that all they can do is just like make sure they're telling a good story and hope to God that both groups will be interested in it. I'd like to talk to you about writing process. Uh, how do you go about composing your work? What are strategies or techniques uh, you have found useful in writing long form nonfiction like this as opposed to shorter pieces? Yeah, I mean, this was this was tough. You know, I my my day job is journalism you know I, I write all day for a living um but it's it, this was totally different in that you know a I wasn't having to interview anybody um so I could kind of make the book what I wanted it to be which was utterly terrifying because I need to have some sort of structure um so you know something like this you know where I had 52 books and films. And then I also had a full-time job on top of it. You know, if there is a silver lining to a pandemic, it was that I had a lot of free time. Um, you know, I wasn't doing anything. So, you know, for me, I really benefited from having a really set structure where I would work during the day. And at the same time, like on my lunch break, you know, I, I had a schedule. So on Sundays, I would watch the movie and that would be the first thing. Because most people coming to my book have already maybe seen the, the film. So I would watch the film, take my notes, 
And then I would take the book and Monday through Friday, I would break the book up into sections. So I had to read X amount of pages a day. Um, so I would do that. And then Saturday, it would be writing, you know, be making my outline and trying to find what I was going to write. And then the whole thing would start again on Sunday. Um, so for me, it was like kind of treating it like I would write an article for for my day job, which is like, what's the story I want to tell? You know, what's interesting about this book that I could utilize to sustain, you know, 800 words, which actually is not a lot of space when you start start breaking it down. So, you know, certain things, it would just be like, like to have and have not, you know, the fact that it is the worst Hemingway book, that's the story and using that as a launch pad, um, you know, or something like, like True Grit, um, you know, and, and talking about how that really is a movie that's a John Wayne vehicle and how that's very different than the book, which did not envision a specific actor and how does that change things? Um, so really, you know, the movie and the book would kind of what I found interesting about both, you know, either the greatest change or the greatest similarity would kind of dictate what the um, the the writing would be. Yeah, that Charles Portis book is amazing. The, the True Grit book. And and I, I'm partial to the Coen Brothers adaptation. Yeah. Yeah, the Coen Brothers one is is a really it's a great example of a, of something like kind of like Little Women where, you know, you have the original and then you have the remake where they would go back to the source material because you're never going to be able to top what John Wayne did. The only thing you can do is go back to the source material. And I think what the Coen Brothers did, you know, I saw the Coen Brothers version before I saw the the um, John Wayne version. And what I love about the Coen Brothers one is that it really is Maddie Ross's story as opposed to a Rooster Cogburn story. Um, and it's, you know, it's just a good old fashioned Western. Uh, whereas you watch the the um, John Wayne version and, you know, John Wayne's fantastic. You know, it, it, it should have been his, his Oscar film. Um, and the character just became so synonymous with him so much so that they did a sequel. Um, that it's hard to, you know, it shows how it's impossible kind of to divorce an actor from their persona at that time. Every, every performance just was John Wayne. And in the Coen brothers version, Haley Steinfeld is awesome. It's amazing. She's so good. She is so, so good. And even Jeff Bridges, you know, he has a tall order playing a character that John Wayne immortalized. And he is just, he is so good at making the character his own, but also giving us a little bit of that John Wayne in there. This was uh, an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Kristen. Of course. Thank you so much.